All right, tonight we're going to start, I'm going to read uh, part of an article, not the whole thing, um, because I think it kind of explains, kind of explains what we've been trying to do. Maybe you'll understand it, maybe you will not, but we'll, I'll, I'll try to make it make sense. The article begins this way. I love doing math. Obviously, I didn't write that, okay? But I love doing math. My favorite part of being in grad school, uh, getting, uh, getting a computer science degree, was the chance to do research in mathematics. Most people that I talk to, though, don't really understand what doing math means, not realizing that there is a distinction between doing math and using math. They vaguely imagine me sitting at a desk doing rows and rows of arithmetic problems um, or maybe calculus problems. Instead, they should be imagining me inventing calculus. And then he puts, I wish. Studying the structure and patterns and numbers, exploring the logical implications of various mathematical hypotheses, or investigating the relationship between various mathematical Uh, definitions, both to create approaches that other people can use for problem solving and simply for the sake of understanding itself, right? So in other words, there's a difference between using math and doing math, or I will add to the discussion, there's a difference between learning math, using math, and doing math. Now, he says, in the same way, there is a difference between learning, using, and doing theology. What are those three again? Learning, using, and doing theology. Many pastors and writers are concerned about the first. They note that most Christians in America are sloppy, about or ignorant of theological issues. They simply don't know very much about their faith and are distressing uh, and distressingly willing to compromise on principles that previous generations of Christians fought long and hard to establish. My concern in this article is with the second. I believe we need to create a space in the culture of our local churches in which gifted individuals can do theology i.e. can create their theological positions on modern questions in addition to responding to the traditional theological systems developed by past generations. Now, why did I, why am I reading that and why do I want you to understand that? Because I don't know how many years ago, well, here's, here's how it worked. When I first started as a pastor, my goal was to not only teach the Bible, but was to teach theology. I did everything I could to say, come on, guys, read systematic theologies, read systematic theologies, read systematic theologies, read, read, I begged, I pleaded, read the Westminster, read the London Baptist. I taught everyone the Puritan Catechism. I did everything, pleaded everyone to to learn it, to learn it, to learn it, to learn it, to learn it. Then I started transitioning in my teaching from learning to trying to teach you how to use theology. 
At that point, I think I started losing some people, okay? People weren't quite understanding. Well, okay, let me try to explain. We are now along past learning it. We're now along past using it. I'm trying to get you understanding doing theology. That's what we have been doing now for a long time. I have a feeling that I don't think some people have caught on. But let me just say, we're not going backwards. If you want to go back there, you, you I'm sorry, I'm not moving backwards. I'm in the doing stage. Right? The learning stage was the elementary stage. The using it was the intermediate stage. We're now in the advanced class. All right? And so you have to be able to know how to do... Now, you can't do theology if you didn't learn theology, but if you didn't learn theology, whose fault is that? Everyone should say whose fault it is. It's yours, because I've provided you every resource available to you to, for you to learn it. If you didn't take advantage of that... Can't, so you can't get to the doing part and go, man, man, I sure wish we could go back to the learning part. <laughs> That's not the way it works. We are to progress... We are to progress. We are to progress. So we have been doing, in a sense, theology. And and remember how he used uh, that last statement. Let me describe how he, or let me read how he described it. All right. I believe we need to create a space in the culture of our local church. Okay. I created that space. I just made it. Right. Okay. I just said it's here. Right. Okay. Um, In which gifted individuals can do theology. I try to treat all of you as if you can do it. Right? That's how I try to treat you, right? And he goes, i.e., can create their theological positions on modern questions in addition to responding to traditional theological systems. Have we not been responding to traditional theological systems? Yes, we have. Right? Yes, we have. Well, you can't say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, First, you can't say anything about that unless you first actually learn those theological systems, right? You can't say, well, 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 what, but, but we believe that. Okay, it doesn't matter what we believe. The issue is, what did you learn, right? If you didn't actually learn the theological system, then, you know what I'm saying, then doing the theology is going to be difficult. So we're in a doing theology stage, all right? That's where I've been trying to move people for a long time. Now, doing theology requires work. It requires effort. It requires knowledge. It requires a lot of of things. Just like I've tried to move you past learning hermeneutics to using and then doing hermeneutics. On every aspect, I've tried to get those, that's been my, my mindset in trying to accomplish that. So, the reason I bring that up is because right now we have been doing theology, right? And we've been doing theology because we have been confronted with a theological system. First, we were confronted with the theological system and the canons of Dort. And they said that we can have, basically, assurance, right? And we can have assurance by looking to what? No, ourselves. And when we look to ourselves, we look for infallible fruit, and now I can have assurance that I am saved, right? And then we were also confronted with a, not a theological position in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, which indicated that we are judged according to our what? Our works, 
Okay? And so we all this brought up issue after issue after issue. I cannot repeat everything I've said. We've got now, I think, six sermons on it um, posted. Um, you know, and we posted four sermons uh, dealing with the evidential argument. Um, we, I mean, we've had all kinds of information provided. So the goal, hopefully, here in the next hour is to try to come to as, much, to as many conclusions as we can possibly come to. I don't, now, when I say conclusions, conclusions are different than answers. Right? Everybody know the difference between a conclusion and an answer? Right? We may conclude that we don't have an answer, but we've got to be very honest. Now, this morning, we, we came to, uh, to some pretty startling revelations, did we not? When we looked at MacArthur's commentary on Romans chapter 2, verse 6, and his idea of being that we're judged according to, to our deeds, he made some very um, staggering Admissions. First admission, he acknowledged that the Bible teaches were judged according to our works from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And he says that it is very clear, very simple and very clear. And then he goes on to say, however, it doesn't mean what I think it does. And the only way to figure it out is to do study. And then he tries to offer uh, some kind of answer, some kind of uh, you know, understanding to it, which which ultimately led to the absolutely astonishing claim in the commentary on Romans that, and remember this, he gave us a subjective assurance and objective assurance. And what did he classify as subjective assurance? Faith alone is subjective. And what did he make objective? Our works. And that's a, that's a frightening thing. So, so subjectively, if, I, if faith alone and Christ alone, that's subjective, and I can't really trust that. But I can trust my works, which thing flies in the face of Matthew 7, where you had a bunch of people who had all kinds of works who ended up not saved. So we, we started uh, underlining all kinds of problems. Then we went to MacArthur's sermon, and I posted these sermons online. And we started looking at his... Uh, his, his, his understanding of 1 John. And what's his presupposition in 1 John? It's a test. And I think, according to MacArthur, I posted a video on the app today and sent out a notification. Um, and it's a short video where they are, are examining MacArthur's perspective on this. Um, MacArthur believes there's at least 11 tests in 1 John. 11. We're not going to look at all 11. And he claims that if you look at these tests, guess what you can do? You can determine if you're saved or unsaved by looking at these tests. And all these tests focus on what? You. I want to keep stressing that. It focuses on you. All right? Now, we started working through them. What was the first test? Have you enjoyed fellowship? And how did he describe this test? He used a very important word. starts with an E. Experiential. It's a feeling. It's something you experience. Now, right there, places it in what category? Subjective. <laughs> I don't know how you can make it an objective if it's experiential. And not only that, he did something weird with the text, right? He 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 made it a test. The test, the the chapter itself doesn't really make fellowship a test. It makes a test to determine if we have fellowship, which is a completely mishandling of First John. And it was weird that he did that. And not only that, he made the second test. He made the second test kind of separate from the first test, but in reality, the way he was handling the text, they kind of fit together. All right? 
So let's go through this. Go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. I want to go back to his sermon, and we'll, we'll, read some, uh, we'll start with the second point. I'm not going to read what he said on the first point, but we'll work through this. I'm going to offer kind of my alternative. We, we really, what we kind of did is we kind of stumbled into a different way of understanding 1 John, right? And that wasn't really the goal, but it kind of happened, all right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. All right, everybody there? Yes? 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we identified is there's no test language there in any way, shape, or form. No test, right? Agreed? Okay. Verse 4, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Okay? Now, verse 5, this, is, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Stop right there. Now, what did we say verse 5 serves as? Well, if you're going to make this a test book, God is the standard, right? And even MacArthur uh, stated that the statement of there's no darkness in him, he translated that to mean what? No sin. He is sinless. So he equates darkness with what? Sin. Now that's a very important hermeneutical principle and point, especially in how he handles the rest of this. Okay? So he says fellowship is the test. Right? Now I've got a lot of this. I've just got to go out there and, and throw out there. I don't have time to review all of this. Those who hear this online, you've got to go back and listen to the rest or you're going to be lost. All right? So everybody got that. Right? Very important point. If darkness equals sin... And God is without sin. God is the, is the standard. He is the answer key to the test. Right? Okay. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Stop right there. Now here, fellowship is not the test. The test is determined if we have fellowship. Does everybody see that? Let me state it again. Is fellowship the test? What is the test? The test is to determine if we do have fellowship. Everybody got that? Everybody see what I'm trying to say? Okay, everybody got that? All right, now, listen to me carefully. I raised an important question. MacArthur makes fellowship and salvation synonymous. Not all Christians agree with that. Many Christians can say, I cannot lose my salvation, but I can lose my fellowship. Because fellowship is speaking of intimacy, closeness, and common. And sin breaks that fellowship, but it does not destroy my salvation. Now, if we go with the test argument that fellowship is synonymous with salvation, what then does that verse say? Well, how would we have to read this test then? If we make them synonymous, what would this test tell us? Verse 6. Yeah, if darkness equals sin, if we walk in sin, we're not saved. Now, let me make this clear. The typical way of getting around this was speaking of habitual sin. That sounds good until you start wait, wait, asking a question. Does, do all of you continually sin? 
that means you all are walking in darkness, right? Now you say, well, it's only certain sin. Like it's one sin that you can do over and over and over and over. Well, don't you do a lot of sins over and over and over and over? Right? So immediately, if we make this a test about salvation, then we immediately have to determine what would be the determination if we make this a test about salvation? That we're not saved. Unless, is there anyone here think they are? Right. No, based off this test. At this point, I don't know if anybody's even saved. Okay. But do you see the point? Now you just got to be honest. If you're going to say it's a test, it's a test, then live it, prove it. And all you got to do is live a life that you never walk in darkness. Now, MacArthur ignores that, doesn't he? Remember in the sermon? He just says what? Fellowship is this wonderful experience, and if you experience your sin. He doesn't even give us the test that the text actually gives. Right? Why? Because everyone he knows has to walk in darkness. He has to walk in darkness. We all walk in darkness. Right? Now, stop right there. What was his next test? Sensitive to sin. Now, please note what he does here. Everybody listening? All right? Now, I know we're taking a little bit of time to back up, but we've got to do this to go forward, right? Because once we get past these two major points, the rest are going to be easy to, to, to knock out in the last 30 minutes. Everybody ready? I'm going to read it again. Second question. Remember, he's, he's t- giving these tests in question form. Second question. Are you sensitive to sin? Then he repeats it. Are you sensitive to sin? Now, stop right there. Immediately, what, what, what could you interpret from that question or this test? Are you sensitive to sin? Can you agree that that's subjective? Was Luther sensitive to sin? Is anybody here like Luther? So then that means that there's different levels of... So how sensitive does one have to be in order to be saved if this is a test? And remember, he even argued that these are what kind of tests? Objective. Objective. The first two tests are as subjective as you can get. With just, I mean, this is just thinking logically. Right? Now let's see what he does here. He says, go back to chapter 1 for a moment. This is a very important portion of Scripture. Verse 5 of chapter 1. Y'all can look at it. I'm just going to read it as he's got it because I kept going back and forth and that's why I kinda, it got all broken up this morning. I wasn't happy, but here we go. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now the point here is that the message which the Lord has set, sent to us is about himself. The message is that God is absolutely sinless, absolutely holy, absolutely perfect, has no blemish, no sin, no ignorance. There is not literally in the Greek a single bit of darkness in him. Uh, now, that's the basic foundation, foundational truth to the section. All right? So he makes an argument. Darkness equals what? All right. Now, that means you would have to interpret the next darkness as sin, meaning I can't walk in sin. Meaning I cannot sin. Because if I sin on a, any one of a consistent basis, I'm walking in it. Therefore, I'm not saved. Unless I say that walking, that deals with my fellowship, 
Right. Or you, yeah, or you could say my fellowship is hurt or my, you know, there's something with it. Okay, but all right, we get the idea. Immediately we come to verse 6. Follow as I read. This is how he states it. Now he's going to quote it. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if God is light, all light, and nothing but light, and we are walking in darkness, then that's not fellowship with him. Now there he says it. Okay. That's not fellowship. Now, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now let's stop right here before we continue with the sermon. Remember this morning I tried to help you see kind of the weird contradictory way this is being worked out? Let me explain. According to this view... Fellowship and salvation are what? Synonymous. Okay, everybody got that? If I walk in darkness, i.e. I sin on a continual basis, which we all do, I am not saved. So the only way for me to be saved would be able to not only claim, but be convinced that I do not walk in darkness, that I do not sin. Now here's the problem. The very next section says, if I say I have no sin, I'm a liar. Wait, I have to have no sin, but if I say I have no sin, that's a, that's a broken thing. But let's see what he does with this. Okay, let's see what he, what he does with that. All right, he goes on. So here are some people who say, yes, we know God. We fellowship with God. We walk with God. But the truth is, they walk in sin and flatly, at what, deny it. There are lots of people who are so utterly oblivious that they think they're walking in the light when they're walking in the darkness. And walking in the darkness claim to have no sin or not to have sinned at all. Now, right here, immediately he's making an argument. There's people who can be what? No, self-deceived. There's people who think that they're without sin. Well, okay, wait a minute. If there's people who can think that, then how do you know if you're not one of those who think that? And wouldn't you have to think that if you walk in darkness, you're not saved? Wouldn't you have to think that you're not walking in darkness in order to be saved? This is like, this is the, the logic in this sermon and the logic in this entire presentation. I've never seen something so disjointed and broken in my entire life. It's like the, the train, not, it didn't leave the tracks. The train just flew into a volcano and exploded. I mean, I, I don't even understand what's going on here. It's, it's all broken. But let's see if he can put it back together in any way, all right? So he, he says, here's these people. They're confused. They think they're without sin, but obviously they're clueless, right? Now listen to what he says here. Uh, There's lots of people who are utterly oblivious that they think they're walking in the light when they're walking in the darkness. And walking in the darkness, they claim to have no sin or not to have sinned at all. It is characteristic of an unregenerate, unbelieving uh, person to be utterly oblivious to the condition of sin within his life. 
So what he's arguing is that in verse um, 8, 9, and 10, right? Or we'll have verse 8 and verse 10, I guess. Verse 9 would be different. Verse 8 and 10. He's making an argument that this is a sign of a lost person. A lost person, he's arguing, is not sensitive to sin, that a lost person don't believe that they have sinned. And he's making this a test of salvation. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. First, who is writing? John. Has he not used the term we since verse 1? Every single, and then all of a sudden in verse 9, if we, who's the we? Has to be the believers he's writing to. Right? He's making, MacArthur's saying, no, 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 no. This is characteristic of lost people, of unregenerate people. This is proof that you're lost. Wait, John is saying, if we do this, right? Now, if we do this, what MacArthur's claiming, or, or how he's reading John, what John is saying is, any of, if any of us do this, we're lost. Right? Now, but here's the, here's the, the subtle point. He already made the claim that if we walk in darkness... We're not saved. So wouldn't you, by MacArthur's logic, have to then claim you don't walk in darkness? How can you make both of them test? (laughs) The the tests contradict contradict one another. Right? That doesn't make any sense. So, how could we read this? Well, you could read it this way. If we say that fellowship here is in question and not salvation, right? Then this would make sense. Hey, if I, right, want to have fellowship with God and I'm walking around claiming that I don't have any sin, the truth is not in me. If I say I've not sinned, I make him a liar and his word is not in us. I'm, I'm moving away from God. I'm not having fellowship with God. If I'm claiming that I'm all good and I'm okay, I need to confess my sins. That brings me closer to God. Acknowledging my sin should bring me closer to God. Denying my sin will... So we have a good example of David. Remember the Psalms speaks of David when he did not confess his sin. What did it say he did? It says his bones ached and he wept. He was far from God. It's when he confessed his sin. Well, was David lost? But he wasn't confessing his sin. So, right? So I, I don't know, but it, again, it's a weird test. He reads it, he just reads it like a very black and white. There's the test. And, and he reads it as sensitivity to sin. This is not even about sensitivity to sin. This, if, I, if I made this a test, how would I have to make the test? If Bobby says he doesn't have any sin, then he's lost. That's not with sensitivity. That's simply acknowledgement. Correct? Does verse 8 and 10 read as sensitivity or acknowledgement? Yeah, it, it doesn't talk about how sensitive they are. It's just a matter of what? Not saying that I... Right. So he's, he's turning it into a sensitivity issue. It's not a sensitivity issue. If I'm going to make it a test, the, the best way I can make it a test is you cannot claim to be without sin, which is going to make it very difficult considering I'm supposed to claim that I'm without sin because if I walk in darkness, I'm not saved. So far, so good?
Okay, possibility, right? Yeah, the idea that if I'm in fellowship with God and close to God, right, then I'll be in light and aware of my sin. If I'm not in fellowship with God, I'm in darkness. In other words, I'm far from God, and then I will not see my sin. That's a, that's a better idea than making this just some blanket test so far. Does that make sense? What Seth said? Does everybody understand that? Now, I have to go back and see if that would 100% work, but at least I'm more in line with that than just making his tests contradict themselves. All right? Let's see where else he goes on uh, here to say. All right? Um, he goes, so here there's some people, all right? Um, this is a sign of an unregenerate, unbelieving person. Uh, to, believe, to, to be utterly oblivious to the condition of sin in their life. That's what John's point is. The man in verse 6 is not confessing sin because he doesn't think it's necessary. He doesn't even recognize it. He doesn't even acknowledge it. He just walks along in the darkness thinking he's communion, communing with God. Now please note, he's claiming that this person is a person who believes he's communing with God. He says it's an unregenerate person, but it's an unregenerate person who supposedly believes he's communing with God. Not all unregenerate people believe they're communing with God. So, I mean, he's making a blanket statement of what kind of unregenerate person this is. So, I mean, I, I don't know how he's finding all of this in the text. I'm just, I'm lost here all day, all right? So, um... This man in verse 8 is not confessing sin because he thinks he's reached a state where he has no sin. The man in verse 10 is not confessing sin because he never has confessed it or acknowledged sin. Then he goes, three words describe these three viewpoints. The first word in verse 6 is darkness. The second word in verse 8 is deceit. And the third word in verse 10 will make, it, will make defamation because you make God a liar because God says you have sinned. So, here are people who claim to be Christians. Note, he says these people claim to be Christians. Right? He, he, I mean, he knows a lot about these people, doesn't he? Right? He just... Yeah. Like, if you're going to apply this test, I guess you, this test only applies to people who claim to be Christians, right? So, if you, claim, if you claim to be a Christian, wouldn't you have to acknowledge sin at some point to even claim to be a Christian? Right? I mean, I'm so confused by this test. I don't even understand how this test works, okay? Um... So he goes, uh, so, so these are people who claim to be Christians but are utterly insensitive to the reality of their sinning. Now again, he says they're insensitive. Verse 8 and verse 10 has nothing to do with sensitivity. It's about acknowledging it. It's not about being sensitive to it. Agreed? If I was going to use sensitivity, I would go to Romans where Paul says the things I want to do. That's more sensitivity. Verse John is not dealing with sensitivity here. It's dealing with acknowledgement, all right? Uh, on the other hand, they, they can deny it altogether and think that they can walk and have fellowship with God. They're utterly insensitive to the reality of their condition, and the truth is they do not know God. They do not practice the truth. They deceive themselves. The truth is not in them. They made a God a liar, and his word is not in them. Uh, there's an unbeliever, a person who isn't sensitive to the sinful condition. That is why we always say when we preach the gospel, what do you have to preach first? Sinfulness of man. Now, on the other hand, let's go back and pick up the other verse, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, in other words, if we walk a virtuous walk, we have fellowship with one another. That one another, by the way, refers to God, not to other believers. That's, that's a big statement, all right? And the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps on cleansing us from sin. 
The truly saved walks as a pattern of life in the light. The truly saved, look at verse 9, don't deny their sin. They what? They confess it. And God is faithful and righteous to keep forgiving it and keep on cleansing it. So we can say the true believer is, so we can say the true believer is always walking in the light. That's a big statement. The true believer is always walking in the light and always confessing the deeds of darkness that he does in the light. He, he has a right sense of sin. He knows if he's going to communion with God, he has to be holy. Listen to that. He knows if he's going to commune with God, he has to be holy. Is anybody here Holy. I mean, like, he has to walk in the light. He knows when sin occurs in his life. You see, he says, you have to walk in the light, you have to be holy, but then he acknowledges that they sin. Well, if they're sinning, they're not holy. (laughs) How can you say the same things in the same breath? I, I, I don't know, all right. He knows that when sin occurs in life, it must be confessed. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things that you, may not, that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says you don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. Did y'all know that? Now listen to what he's going to say. You don't have to sin. There's a new liberty here. He says, I'm writing to tell you, uh, you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. You don't have to do this. But if you do, there's forgiveness. The true believer, one, recognizes that he must walk in purity if he's going to commune with God. He recognizes, two, that when he sins, he needs to confess it. And three, he doesn't have to sin. According to MacArthur, a true believer understands he doesn't have to sin. Now, if he believes that you have the liberty not to sin, then what is he claiming? By logic, that there can be what? Sinless people. Now, that's why he has tests. That's that's the presupposition in his entire theory. The reason he's going to judge all these as tests is because, hey, Bobby, you don't have to sin. Well, now I can give a test based off that presupposition. I don't hold to that presupposition. And the reason I don't hold to that presupposition is because I know me and I know my wife. She sins. Okay, well, Jenna, she does. What do you say? Well, Jenna's looking at me like she does it. According to Mr. Goodlett, so do you. Okay, right, right, right. If you're close to someone, you know they sin and you know they claim to be a Christian. So I, I, I can just, I know tonight I get in the car, just look at Stacy. Hey, don't sin this week. That should make you a far better wife. Right? I, I'll just say I reject your presupposition. Okay, all right. So, agreed? Now, does anybody here believe you cannot sin? That you have the ability not to sin? I, I, I mean, I, I don't either. I, I don't even know how you can believe that. That's why, that, right, 
Doesn't that just fix the whole problem? I mean, do we even need to go any further? That's why he believes these are tests. All right? Um, he goes on. I'm not going to read everything else here. I'll just go through the next question. The, uh, question number three. Um, are you obedient to God's word? That's the next test. Are you obedient to God's word? Well, he already established that you can be what? Obedient to God's word. Because what does that even mean, obedient to God's word? How obedient does one have to be? All right. A fourth question. Uh, Do you reject the world? Do you reject the world? Do you reject the world? Now, is that about as subjective as it can be? Why is it subjective? If we take everyone in this room and you tell me what worldliness is, I bet you are going to get some drastically different opinions. Right? You're going to say, oh, you watch that, you're worldly. Oh, you go there, you're worldly. Oh, you dress that way, you're worldly. Oh, you do that, you're worldly. You do this. Some, I mean, I mean, some people believe if, if, a wife were, if a wife works outside the home, that's worldliness. Or wears pants. World. So you can't even get agreement on worldly. So just saying reject the world. Guess who, you, guess, for, to pass this test, guess whose standard you're going to have to pass? MacArthur's definition of worldliness. Well, when did he become the Pope? All right? And, and then number five, uh, do you love Christ so that you eagerly await his coming? Do you love Christ so that you eagerly await his coming? Well, the fact is, just saying, do you love Christ? How much do I supposed to love him? I, I guess Luther was in trouble. Love him. Sometimes I hate him. Oh, I'm sorry, Luther, you're not saved. Pope MacArthur has decreed it, and therefore it is so. Now, I could go read through all those tests, but first of all, let's go through this. Let's do this. All right, we're going to try to summarize this and try to come up with some conclusions. You ready? Okay, here we go. Number one. Evidential, uh, the evidential idea of assurance... is subjective, contradictory, and illogical. The evidential idea that you can know your say by looking at some evidence, it is what? It is subjective at best, it's contradictory, and it breaks down logically. Agreed? I would love the evidential idea to be correct. I, I, struggle, I have struggled with the evidential idea my whole Christian life. There, there's times I, did, I didn't know what else to do. I've accepted the evidential idea because I went with the evidential idea because when you're learning theology, you have to learn a system and go, this is the system I'm going to go with. The key is you don't stay with the learning. At some point, you have to start doing. Now, in between the learning and the doing, you start using and when you start using it, then you may start using a system going, okay, this is the way I have to use it. And you may be falling into the same contradictions, but you're not going to be able to correct the contradictions until you start doing theology. That's why you have to do theology, right? Does everybody understand that? All right, so what's number one? Ev- the evidential idea of assurance is what? Number one, 
Subjective, contradictory, and illogical. Number two, the evidential idea of assurance forces you to look to yourself and not to Christ. The evidential idea forces you to look to yourself and not to Christ. Is that not what all of the, uh, I mean, we gave all of the, uh, the side that teaches the evidential idea, we gave them enough rope to hang themselves, didn't we not? I mean, we came up with 12 points, 12, 11 points from the uh, Canons of Dort and the London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith. We came up with 11 points, and those 11 points made it very clear. Who do I look to? Myself. Who do I look to? Myself. How do I know I saved myself? Forget what Jesus did. It's what I'm doing. And like, and, but they try to claim, hey, it's not what you're doing. It's what God is doing through you. But if it's what God is doing through me, well then, wait a minute. Then everyone's work. I mean, like that. If, then if Bobby doesn't have the same amount of work that I have, then who does Bobby have to, does Bobby need to feel bad about it? No, because God doesn't want Bobby to have the same amount of works that I have. I mean, I... That's, that's, the broken, that's the broken idea as well, right? So what's number one? Right? And, I, and, I, and, and I, I'm not going to lay out every illogical thing, but I just pointed out another illogical thing right there, okay? Number two? Forces you to look to yourself and not to the finished work of Christ. And that's, that's theologically troubling to me. If I'm a Protestant, if I'm going to be a Protestant, if I'm a Catholic, that makes perfect sense. Okay? And well, actually, I would say Catholics that make more sense than, than the evangelical side. I mean, it just is so confusing. All right? So far, so good? All right? <clears throat> um, what else do we want to do here? Um, how do I want to state this one? Accepting the evidential idea doesn't completely solve the judgment according to works problem. The evidential idea doesn't completely resolve the judge, judge according to our works problem. All right? <clears throat> Let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. Probably I could come up with a better way of stating it, but I think you'll get the idea. Why did all this start? Well, it started for two reasons. We, have, we had the London Baptist Confession, or the uh, Canons of Dort telling us that we can have assurance by looking to infallible fruit, Right? And then at the same time, we came to Romans 2, verse 6, which tells us works. And this raised a lot of problems. And the reason this comes together is the Protestant evangelical idea is, yeah, all those scriptures say you're judged according to your works, but it doesn't mean you're saved by your works. It means your works will prove if you're saved. All right. That sounds good, but why doesn't it fix the problem? Why doesn't it fix the problem? Why doesn't this completely resolve the judgment according to works problem? I'll see if y'all can figure out why it doesn't work. There's a number of reasons it doesn't work. 
No, no, no. I'm saying that if, if we go with the evidential idea that says the evidential idea resolves the judgment according to works, I'm saying it doesn't resolve it. Why doesn't it resolve it? Even if we say it's true, it doesn't resolve it. Even if we say, yes, the evidential idea is 1,000% true, it doesn't contradict, it's, it's not illogical, why doesn't it fix the problem? Do what? Okay, well, let me explain it this way. If we try to argue the judgment according to works is explained away, because what are they trying to explain away? That we're not saved... By, no, we're not saved by our works, right? That's why the whole uh, evidential idea came about, correct? I can't be judged. If, if you say I'm judged according to my works, you're saying I'm saved by works. I'm not saved by works, so I'm going to say that works prove my salvation. Therefore, this resolves the problem. Why doesn't it resolve the problem? Because all, you're simply saying the same thing. Remember I told you it's, a, it's, a, it's circular reasoning, Bobby, you're not saved by your works. Your works prove that you're saved. However, if you don't have works, you're not saved. That doesn't fix the problem. That just tries to change, it just tries to move the statement from one part to the next part, and somehow magically you're out of the problem. You're not out of the problem because you're literally saying you're saved by your works. Even though you're saying, no, no, no. I'm not saying I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by the works that God does. Well, if God's doing the work, well, then you're, you've got more problems, right? Because then if Stacy has more works than Bobby, and, and then I'm going to start preaching like, man, Bobby, you need to get your act together. No, I don't. God's doing the work. If God wants me to have more works, I'll have more works. I just need to have God produce enough works that will get me where? Devin, hey, all kinds of problems, right? It doesn't. You see how it doesn't fix the problem. I, I know y'all been. We've all been so brainwashed that we we think it sounds so good, right? I'm not saved by works, but works show that I'm saved. I'm not like those Catholics. I feel better. And then someone from the outside goes, "You're saying the same thing, right?" Because if you don't have the works, you're not saved. So what is required? Works. Yeah. But no, no, no. They're not, the works don't save me. They just prove that I'm saved. You're still saying they are required. So you can, you can, you can do all the double speak you want, but anyone with, a, 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 you know, have ever taken a freshman course in logic is going to eat your lunch there and go, you're, you're playing a, a game of semantics. You're like, if I just put the works here, then I'm not saved by my works. Okay, I'm not saved by my works, then I'm not going to do anything. Oh, no, 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 you're not saved. Come on, man, which is it? And then not only that, it creates a problem with 1 Corinthians 3 that seems to say all my works can do what? Burn up, and yet I would be... You see, it doesn't completely fix the problem. Everyone agree? Doesn't... And what why why what's another reason it doesn't fix the problem? Because you have no way of really knowing how many works you have to have to be saved. Right. Right. So let's go for a lot of reasons it doesn't work. Number one, it doesn't work because you're really you're really saying the same thing you're trying to avoid. Does that make sense? 
You're trying to say that, I, hey, the, the, the reason uh, the Bible says we're judged according to our works is not because we're saved by our works, but because our works prove that we're saved. You're still basically saying you need works in order to be saved. Does that make sense? All right. that's, that's not getting you out of the problem. That's just you trying to, to change the, the order of words to get out of the problem. All right. Number two, we'll go with Sarah's first. The second reason this doesn't work is you have Matthew 7. Matthew 7 seems to indicate someone can have all kinds of works and still be lost. Third reason it doesn't fix the problem, 1 Corinthians 3 seems to imply my works can burn up and still be saved, meaning I have no works. (laughs) That doesn't work. Okay, everybody see that? Yes? Okay, all right. And we could go into more detail there that we, we, we could have. Right? We could go into more detail, but we, we don't get there. Now, all right, let's, hang on, let me see if I can find it real quick. All right. Um, I'm going to throw out two ideas. Oh. I'm going to throw out, uh, those, those kind of explain, that, that gives you certain things to work with. I know it doesn't answer all the questions, but I'm going to throw something out here, okay? Some will argue, well, there has to be some kind of test. There has to be some way of knowing, all right? I'm going to throw out t- two ideas more from church history, okay? All right? And here are the two ideas. I'm going to call them the trust test, And the belief test. The trust test. And the belief test. All right? And I don't even know if I like the word test, but if I'm going to come up with a test, I'll show you why. Go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. All right. Now, this is not a perfect example of this, but it gives this basic idea, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should have everlasting life, right? Should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? I'm kind of misquoting that, but you get the idea, right? There are a number of passages in the Bible that seems to indicate that my salvation is based off me doing what? Believing on Christ, right? That's the trusting. So the trusting test would simply be, who are you trusting in for your salvation? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in you? Now, this goes against the evidential idea because the evidential idea, even though you say you're trusting in Christ, you really have to trust in what? Your works, right? I mean, I mean, if I'm going to sit there and go, man, these works prove that I'm saved, it doesn't really ultimately matter what Christ did because I have to, det- I can only trust, I can only have any assurance if my works prove it, which contradicts this entire idea. I think the first test is, who are you trusting in for your salvation? 
Who are you trusting in for your salvation? All right? Now, the next test is a belief test. All right? Grab the Trinity hymnal. Turn back to the Apostles' Creed. I can't remember what page it is. 858. I don't know what it is. The Trinity hymnal. That's the wrong hymnal, Stephen. 845. I was pretty close. Yeah, there's a number. I came close. Okay. No, actually, I don't. I don't think of any numbers a lot. All right. And what do you find in 845? You find the Apostles' Creed. And what does it start with? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Next statement. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. Born of the Virgin Mary, right? Received by the Holy Spirit. See that I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. There's a belief test, and the belief test is do you believe in the right things? The early church offered what test? Belief test, right? You could not be baptized until you could confess Apostles' Creed. There was a belief test. Why was there a belief test? What kind of test is a belief test? Objective. It's objective. Do you believe that God is the Father, maker of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified and died, descended into hell, rose the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, from which he will come to judge the living and the dead? You either, it's either what? Yes or no? I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in uh, the forgiveness of sins, communion of saints, Holy Catholic Church, all the other things. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. I'm, you know, I'm just paraphrasing, but you get the idea. It's objective. I think that that makes more sense. Now, I understand that. Now, we still have, I, there is no question, the evidential side, I understand. Right? There's a couple of tests that seems to do. First Corinthians talks about examining yourself. To see if you're in the faith. I posted a video about that where they offer a different interpretation. Not everyone even agrees what that means to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Right? Because some will argue that the text is mistranslated. And that uh, that uh, examine yourself is not even the first part of the way the verse should be written. And so you get into a whole textual argument there. Okay? Uh, but in 1 John 5, Stacy pointed this out on, on our way here. Look at verse 13. Now, this is where the evidential idea comes from, right? 1 John 5, 13. Everybody there? These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Now, these things is understood by most to be what things? All the test. All the test. Now, I understand that, that there's a lot to try to figure out what's going on there, but at least you could, you know, you could, I can understand where at least it comes from. But the thing is, here's the thing I want to drive home. If you say that it is the test, and the test is the way you, you have eternal life, and you read these tests as they are written, 
What is the only objective conclusion any reasonable person can come to? That you're not saved. I mean, there's no other way to get, unless you start doing what? Well, walking in darkness doesn't mean that I never sin. It just means I don't sin all the time, which then implies that you believe you don't sin all the time. Well, well, it doesn't mean, when it says that I, that I will obey God, it doesn't mean I'm always going to obey God. It just means that I will obey Him more than I don't. Okay, well then, how do I determine percentages? Again, who shows up in Hebrews 11? Samson shows up in Hebrews 11. His whole life is characterized by sin. Okay, well, he doesn't count. He's Old Testament. Okay, well, now, now you're going to start playing all kinds of games like that. Okay, well... Yeah, 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 but she's Old Testament, so it doesn't count, right? I mean, you know, that, that's how they're going to play, play the game. But, I mean, the writer of Hebrews is using them as a, an example of great men of faith. Of faith, you know, well, Samson made all kinds of mistakes, and you like, you, had a, you have a prostitute who shows up in it. Okay, well, whoa, that's, how does that work? Right? So, um, uh, all I am saying that the, the test idea is, Here's the thing. The test idea is designed for what reason? The test idea is designed to try to get around the fact that the Bible says we're judged according to our works. That's why it's designed. Right? And it's designed on a... a, a and, and I'm going to argue that, it, that if you really think about it, it doesn't really resolve the problem. Number one. Okay? Number two, that if you really say the test idea is accurate and you're honest with the test, Right? You read the test. I mean, we did this with Jonathan Edwards. MacArthur takes his idea from Edwards. Uh, Edwards took his idea. I can't remember where he got his idea from. But there's, there's a lineage of where this idea came from. Right? Some could go, it goes back to Roman Catholicism. Right? About how do you know if you're in God's grace? Well, have you committed a mortal sin or have you committed a venial sin? If you commit a mortal sin, you're not in God's grace. This is basically the uh, Protestant... It's the, I mean, here's the thing. The lordship salvation idea, if you read some classifications of it, guess where they put lordship salvation? With Roman Catholicism. <laughs> so it's really the Protestant version of Roman Catholicism. Now you don't think that when, when you say it because you're, you keep being tell, telling yourself, no, I believe that salvation is by faith alone, by Christ alone. But then you turn around and contradict it by creating a series of tests that turns the whole focus not on what Christ did, but focused on what, what you do. And then if you're honest with the test, what's the only conclusion you can come to? We're not saved. All right? So the evidential idea is corrupt and broken. That's the only way around it. So, out of all the things that we've come up with, what's the best idea of how to understand that we're judged according to our works? We don't have a good answer, do we? The best answer we've come up with from a textual basis is to say that there are different judgments. All the judgments are according to works. And a believer will be judged according to their works, but it's going to determine reward, not salvation, because 1 Corinthians 3 implies that even if they all burn up, still saved. All right, which then, which it literally goes against the evidential idea, <laughs> right? Which literally destroys the evidential idea, and then Matthew seven goes against the evidential idea because you have people who seem to have good evidence and still not saved. Right? So we we still got to figure out how we judged according to our works. I don't have a good answer. 
I don't have a good answer, right? And I think, and when you, when you look at the Catholic system, and sometimes you're like, man, that is a convoluted mess. You know why it seems convoluted to you? They're trying to reconcile this. They're at least honest, going, well, wait a minute, man. I know the Bible says you're saved by grace, but the Bible also says I'm judged according to my works. James says, I'm not saved by faith only. They're like, i got to try to work all of this together. If you work all this together, what do you end up with? A convoluted system. And then we say, well, that system's just dumb. So we'll come up with our own. And then we come up with our own. Not only is it convoluted, it may not be convoluted, it just confused. Hey, guess what, guys? Your salvation, I know we say it's on that, but it's not on that. It's on you. How do you know you're saved? Don't look to Jesus. Look to where? What you do. Well, great. Okay. That, I, I reject that. Okay? I reject it. I, I, there's just no way. It doesn't. It cannot sustain itself in any meaningful way. Because if I go through 1 John and I read those tests as being like they're written and not doing what the people did with Jonathan Edwards, like he said this, but, however, you're not going to do it perfectly. You either turn the test into not being actual test, or you read the test as they actually are, and then you have to convince yourself that you're not sinning. Which then 1 John would say, So, I don't know. Is 1 John a test of uh, salvation or is 1 John a test of fellowship? If it's a test of fellowship, that's a far different thing. Is it not? I think it is. Because I think you can, you can be in, a, you can be in a, a saving relationship with God, but your closeness and intimacy with God will do what? Fluctuate based off how you're living. Sometimes you'll feel close. Sometimes you will not. I think 1 John has a lot to do with fellowship more than it has. In fact, that's how the book starts out, correct? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if that's a perfect way, but, you know. Your joy may be full. It's, it's an intimacy. It's a closeness. It's a, I think it's something along those lines more than anything else. Right? So, I don't know. We'll have to stop right there. But we're going to leave it there uh, for now. Now, we may come back to it again at some point, but I, I, I think we've beaten that horse about as much as we can beat it. But we've been as fair to it as we can be. I don't. No one can accuse me of not being fair. I mean, we've gone what seven sermons now, um, four sermons outside of myself, letting MacArthur explain it, and we read everything the London Baptist Westminster and Canons of Dort had to say about it. There's nothing else we can do. I mean, what other source are you going to turn to? Agreed. I mean, we're we're running out of sources. Okay, we're running out of sources. Right. So, but as we go through Romans, we'll see. We'll see. Because we'll pick up what, we, we covered Romans 2, 6 through 10 this morning, at least looking at that. That's pretty clear, is it not? We judge according to our works. How we're going to get around that, I don't know. We'll have to see. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, I, I, I pray that, that the doing theology will be something that spreads to everyone here and that we will work on these issues. But Lord, I pray that... Um, Everyone here is patient that doing theology places you in times of not having good answers. But I would rather not have good answers than having false answers. And I pray that everyone would learn to appreciate that same concept. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...
The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.